0: This evening, I would like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 37. Exodus chapter 37. As we have walked through the book of Exodus together, I've made mention on a few occasions of the structure of the book of Exodus, especially the second half of the book, and how that really beginning in chapter 25 through chapter 40 we have uh, a twofold description of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. In chapter 25 through 31, we have the initial instructions of God to Moses up on the mountain of how the tabernacle and all of its furnishings were to be designed and constructed. And God told Moses that what he was teaching him and what he was showing him was to be patterned after the heavenly tabernacle after the heavenly sanctuary. And then right in the middle, in chapters 32 to 34, we have the situation of Israel's fall through worshiping false gods, making a a golden calf and bowing down before it and, and worshiping this as their God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so while Moses is up on the mountain, hearing from God how to build a sanctuary, a holy sanctuary for God to come and dwell in the midst of his people. The people are down below forsaking the covenant and worshiping other gods. And so that situation had to be dealt with. And so chapter 32 to 34, that whole section is about God and dealing with that sin In conjunction with his holiness, but also in conjunction with his mercy. Because we see Moses on several occasions intercede on behalf of the Israelite people. Really Moses in that section is a picture of Christ. Of standing in the gap between a sinful people and a holy God. And and pleading on their behalf that God would not condemn them. And so Moses is interceding for the people and God grants mercy. And in the end, grants forgiveness to the people and agrees to go with the people. And then we find, beginning in chapter 35 to the end of the book, almost a verbatim, almost a word-for-word re-description of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. But in a little bit different order. The first part, 25 to 31, gave the tabernacle and its furnishings in more of a theological order and so it started with the ark of the covenant before there was even a tent for it to go in because the ark of the covenant is the focus of where God's presence would be but then as you move into chapters 35 to 40 which is the actual carrying out of the instructions the obedience of God's commands and the actual building of the tabernacle we see it unfolding in more of a pragmatic order of starting with the tabernacle, completing that, and then fashioning, making the vessels that would go inside the tabernacle. And so a different order, but the descriptions are very much the same. And so I'm not taking as much time, as much explanation or as much detail on these last few chapters as I did in chapter 25 to 31, just because a lot of it is... Very much the same, and so what i 'd like to do tonight, as I did a few weeks back, is I would like to focus our attention on two chapters of exodus tonight chapter thirty seven and chapter thirty eight and these two chapters together describe all of the the vessels, all of the furnishings that would go inside the tabernacle and what i 'd like to do is i 'd like to read as a whole chapter thirty seven and chapter thirty eight and then offer kind of more of an overview of these vessels and their significance and what they meant for the people of that day and and their abiding application for us as God's people. Exodus 37, verse 1 says, Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. He overlaid it with pure gold, both inside and out. And made a gold molding around it. He cast four gold rings for it and fastened them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. He made the atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Then he made two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. He made one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. At the two ends, he made them of one piece with the cover. The cherubim had their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim faced each other, looking toward the cover. They made the table of acacia wood two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Then they overlaid it with pure gold and made a gold molding around it. They also made around it a rim, a hand wide, and put a gold molding on the rim. They cast four gold rings for the table and fastened them to the four corners where the four legs were. The rings were put close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the table. The poles for carrying the table were made of acacia wood and were overlaid with gold. And they made from pure gold the articles for the table, its plates and dishes and bowls and its pitchers for the pouring out of drink offerings. They made the lampstand of pure gold. They hammered out its base and shaft and made its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches extended from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms were on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand were four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud was under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and the branches were all of one piece with the lampstand hammered out of pure gold. They made its seven lamps as well as its wick trimmers and trays of pure gold. They made the lampstand and all its accessories from one talent of pure gold. They made the altar of incense out of acacia wood. It was square, a cubit long, And a cubit wide and two cubits high, its horns of one piece with it. They overlaid the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and made a gold molding around it. They made two gold rings below the molding, two on each of the opposite sides, to hold the poles used to carry it. They made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. They also made the sacred anointing oil and the pure, fragrant incense the work of a perfumer. They built the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood, three cubits high. It was square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. They made a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar were of one piece, and they overlaid the altar with bronze. They made all its utensils of bronze, its pots, shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and firepans. They made a grating for the altar, a bronze network to be under its ledge, halfway up the altar. They cast bronze rings to hold the poles for the four corners of the bronze grating. They made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. They inserted the poles into the rings so they would be on the sides of the altar for carrying it. They made it hollow out of boards. They made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Next, they made the courtyard. The south side was a hundred cubits long and had curtains of finely twisted linen, with twenty posts and twenty bronze bases, and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side was also a hundred cubits long and had twenty posts and twenty bronze bases, With silver hooks and bands on the posts. The west end was 50 cubits wide and had curtains, with 10 posts and 10 bases, with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The east end, toward the sunrise, was also 50 cubits wide. Curtains 15 cubits long were on one side of the entrance, with three posts and three bases. And curtains 15 cubits long were on the other side of the entrance to the courtyard, with three posts and three bases. All the curtains around the courtyard were of finely twisted linen. The bases for the posts were bronze. The hooks and bands on the posts were silver, and their tops were overlaid with silver. So all the posts of the courtyard had silver bands. The curtain for the entrance to the courtyard was made of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. It was 20 cubits long, and like the curtains of the courtyard, five cubits high, with four posts and four bronze bases. Their hooks and bands were silver, and their tops were overlaid with silver. All the tent pegs of the tabernacle and of the surrounding courtyard were bronze. These are the amounts of the materials used for the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the covenant law, which were recorded at Moses' command by the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made everything the Lord commanded Moses. With him was Aholiab, son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, and an embroiderer in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen." The total amount of the gold from the wave offering used for all the work on the sanctuary was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. The silver obtained from those of the community who were counted in the census was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel one becca per person, that is half a shekel according to the sanctuary shekel from everyone who had crossed over to those counted 20 years old or more, a total of 603,550 men. The 100 talents of silver were used to cast the bases for the sanctuary and for the curtain. 100 bases from the 100 talents, one talent for each base. They used the 1,775 shekels to make the hooks for the posts, to overlay the tops of the posts and to make their bands. The bronze from the wave offering was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. They used it to make the bases for the entrance to the tent of meeting. The bronze altar with its bronze grating and all its utensils, the bases for the surrounding courtyard and those for its entrance and all the tent pegs for the tabernacle, and those for the surrounding courtyard. Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for what this passage teaches us about how important worship is. Thank you for revealing to us the significance of your presence in the midst of your people. Father, I pray that as we reflect on these chapters tonight, that you would help us to see How this reveals you and your character to us. And also how we might come to greater understand and appreciate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless this time, Father, I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. As I was reading Hebrews chapter 9, I had the thought, maybe I should do for Exodus 37 and 38 what the writer of Hebrews did. He just said, The details of these things we can't get into now. (laughs) Did you notice that in Hebrews chapter 9? He was talking about the first sanctuary and all the vessels that went in there, and he he gave the different locations where they were, and then he said, but we can't get into all those details now. I'm going to get a little bit more detailed than that, than the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9, but I'm not going to get as detailed as I did a few weeks back when we were in chapter 25 to 31. What I want us to think about is really the the main significance of each of these vessels that goes into the tabernacle. And I want to start where the text starts with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant clearly was the most important piece of furnishing that would go inside the tabernacle. It was housed in the most holy place inside the tabernacle. So what is it about this Ark of the Covenant that is significant? What does it teach us about God? What does it say to us as God's people? I think one of the things that the Ark of the Covenant reminds us of is that God desires to be present in the midst of his people. God desires to be present in the midst of his people. What we read in Scripture is that this place above the Ark of the Covenant, right above the mercy seat, or the atonement cover between the cherubim is said to be the place where God dwells. It is the place where his glory would be manifest among his people. And we see throughout scripture that God has a desire to dwell with his people. You see it from the very beginning in Genesis all the way to the end in the book of Revelation, that God has a desire to be in the midst of his people. Tim Chester puts it this way in his commentary on Exodus, and I'd like to read an extended paragraph from him. I think he does a great job of showing how the presence of God is a primary theme in Exodus, but really all across Scripture. And we've seen in studying Exodus that that there are some connections between the tabernacle and creation. Uh, There are some similarities in wording where... God said he finished everything and he looked at it and it was very good. At the end of the construction of the tabernacle, Moses looks at it and it's all finished and it's all very good. So there are some similarities, some word links between the tabernacle and creation. There are some word links between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. There are some links between the tabernacle and God's heavenly throne room where God dwells. And so Tim Chester writes this. He says, these links exist because the tabernacle is part of the bigger story of God dwelling with his people. Here's the story in summary. The God of heaven dwelt with humanity in Eden. But when humanity rebelled against God, God's holy presence became dangerous. But God did not give up on his plan to dwell among his people. He rescued Israel and met with them at Mount Sinai. He had the tabernacle built as a plan and promise of his intent to dwell among his people. In time, this was replaced by the temple, which was built with the same proportions, only double the size. That plan was fulfilled in the coming of Christ as God in flesh dwelt among us. That plan is anticipated in the church, and then finally, that plan will be realized in the new creation when the voice from the throne will say, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Revelation 21, verse 3. And so he says, God is present in heaven. God is present in Eden. God is present at Mount Sinai. God is present in the tabernacle and in the temple. God is present in Jesus. God is present in the church and in Christians. And God is present, will be present in the new creation. When put like this, he says it becomes unsurprising that we find parallels backwards and forwards from the tabernacle to all the other occasions and locations of God's presence. These connections exist because God designed them into the story. The tabernacle is his plan and promise to dwell among his people, a plan in which he recreates the earth as his dwelling place with a recreated humanity in a recreated time. Israel is that recreated humanity in microcosm. The tabernacle is that new creation or heaven on earth in microcosm. And the Sabbath is that recreated time in microcosm. The tabernacle is a divine statement of cosmological intent, he says. And so the tabernacle represents across scripture God's desire to dwell in the midst of his people. And that is focused primarily in the Ark of the Covenant, between the cherubim. We also see in the Ark of the Covenant that God is the great king of all creation, and he is enthroned between the cherubim. We see this language throughout scripture where this place between the cherubim, above the mercy seat, is described as God's throne. It's as if the heavenly throne of God above the universe has been modeled in a small form in this Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And God's presence is there dwelling in the midst of his people. And it reminds us that God reigns, that he is king, he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he is enthroned as the God of the universe. We also see with the Ark of the Covenant that in order for God to be present in the midst of his people, propitiatory atoning blood is required. Propitiatory atoning blood is required. That atonement cover, that mercy seat, is not only the place above which God dwells, it is also the place where once a year the high priest on the Day of Atonement would come in and would sprinkle the blood from the sacrifice And that blood would make atonement for the sins of the people. William R. Newell puts it this way. He says, while the whole ark speaks of the person of Christ, as in his double nature, the wood and the gold being himself, the meeting place of God and men, he says the top or the lid of the ark called the propitiatory or mercy seat must especially tenderly represent Christ's work of atonement. And so the way for God's people to dwell in the midst of a holy God is through atoning sacrifice. And that blood on that altar represented that atoning sacrifice. And the only way that we can relate to God now is through Christ and his shed blood on the cross. So the Ark of the Covenant reminds us of God's presence, his heavenly rule and authority, as well as him welcoming us into his presence through atoning sacrifice. What about the table of presence? The table of presence was just outside the most holy place. It was inside the place where where all the priests could go and they would rotate in their service. And a part of their service was to replace the bread of presence on this table every week. And so they would bake new bread and they would put new bread and it would stay there for one week and then they would replace it. And so this table was a place that had bread and the priests would eat it. The priests would eat of that bread as they would replace it. They would eat the bread and it became a part of their sustenance. So what did this teach the Israelites? One, I think it teaches us that this place where God dwells is a home. Many times throughout Exodus. in the description of the tabernacle and its furnishings, we get the imagery of a home. That this is where God lives. And he has things in there that would be appropriate for there being a home. A table with bread on it. A table to provide hospitality for those who would come and would visit. And so it's a home. It's God's holy dwelling. It's a place where God eats with his people and offers hospitality to his people. We saw on Mount Sinai that when God had given them the covenant that the elders of Israel traveled up a certain ways and they engaged in a meal in the presence of God. And that was often the case in the ancient world. They would use a meal to kind of celebrate the ratification of a covenant, of a joining together in this relationship, this binding agreement. And then they would honor that. They would celebrate it with a fellowship meal. This bread represents that, that God is in covenant with his people and also that he sustains and he nourishes his people. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus from Deuteronomy. It says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a reminder that ultimately our sustenance comes from God. He is our strength. He is our provision. And then we see the lampstand the lampstand also in that holy place just outside the most holy place shows us that God is the source of light. God is the source of light. And light stands for direction, for wisdom, for hope. All light comes from God. And those who would walk in the light must walk in harmony with God and his revealed word. But it's interesting too because the lampstand not only provides light, And reminds us that God is the source of all light. But also on that lampstand are these intricately designed blossoms and buds. Which are reminiscent of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And reminds us that God is not only the source of light, but he is the source of life itself. That all life comes from God. Temporal and eternal life, God is the source of. So the lampstand teaches us that God is light and he is our life. The altar of incense reminds us that God welcomes and receives the prayers of his people. The altar of incense reminds us that God welcomes and receives the prayers of his people. Philip Ryken writes in his commentary, he says that the smoking incense represented the prayers of God's people rising to heaven. Psalm 141, 1 and 2 says this, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And so prayer is pictured as incense rising up to God. That same imagery is found in Revelation and so Philip Rackin goes on to say that the altar of incense was Israel's sweet altar of prayer, where the priest praised God for his holiness, thanked God for his mercy, and presented Israel's petitions before the Lord of heaven. So who is God? According to the altar of incense, he is a God who hears and answers prayer. He is the God who welcomes and receives the prayers of his people. What about the altar of burnt offering? This altar is a piece of furnishing that was outside of the tabernacle proper. It was the largest and most prominent piece of furnishing in the courtyard outside of the temple, or outside of the tabernacle. And the thing about this altar that is significant is that it was in constant use. It was always burning. The priests had to continue to keep that fire on that brazen altar burning Why? Because so many sacrifices needed to be offered. Guilt offerings, whole burnt offerings, sin offerings, free will offerings. All of these different kinds of offerings were continually being offered on this altar. And that's not to mention the special offerings on the Day of Atonement that would be offered on this altar. And so the altar of burnt offering teaches us that God is holy and can only be be approached through sacrifice. God is holy, and he can only be approached through sacrifice. We know now that these sacrifices of the Old Testament, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the writer of Hebrews tell us that they cannot ultimately forgive our sins. They cannot ultimately atone for our sins. These sacrifices were temporary. They were provisional. They were pointing us to something greater to come in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And now in the book of Hebrews, the writer says, now Jesus has come and how much more, how much greater is his sacrifice full and final and finished than all these other sacrifices that had been offered time after time after time. The writer of Hebrews says that those sacrifices could not fully cleanse the guilt of the worshiper, but Jesus Christ He can fully atone for our sins. He can fully cleanse our sins before God. And we can walk away cleansed and forgiven and justified because of the finished sacrifice of Christ. God is holy and he can only be approached through sacrifice. The basin for washing this laver where the, the water of purification would be, it reminds us that God desires and he works for the purity of his people. God desires and works for the purity of his people. There's something interesting about the order of the vessels in the outer courtyard. What you would do when you came into the outer courtyard, you would see the altar of of burnt offering. And that's the most prominent piece of furnishing there. And that's where all of these sacrifices would be offered but then stationed between the altar for burnt offering and then the door to the tabernacle was this basin for washing. Symbolizing first that we go through the atonement of redemption, then we go through purifying in approaching the presence of Christ. One commentator comments on the link between this, the ordering of these furnishings, and the exodus event itself. Vern Poitras says this, The altar stands closest to the entrance to the courtyard. After that comes the washing basin. Then comes the tabernacle itself with its two rooms. The Israelites' own experience in the immediate past portrays the same sequence. First, they're in bondage in Egypt. Then they are delivered through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, symbolized by the altar. Then they pass through the Red Sea and still live, whereas their enemies are destroyed. The waters of the Red Sea stand for a kind of ceremonial cleansing from their enemies. And so first we go through redemption, which justifies us, and then we move through purification and cleansing, which continues to sanctify us. First justification, then sanctification. And so God desires and works for the purity of his people. What about the courtyard? What does is, what is the courtyard signify to us? I think a couple of things. One, one interesting thing about the way that the tabernacle and the courtyard was set up is it was set up in terms of barriers, wasn't it? there were very, various levels of barriers. So if you were a Gentile, you could not go into the inner courtyard. But even if you were a Jew, you could not go into the, temple, into the tabernacle. Only a priest could go inside the tabernacle. But even then, even if you were a priest, you could not go inside the most holy place Only the high priest could go inside the most holy place, and that only once a year. All of these different boundaries set up. Why? Again, it communicates to us the holiness of God, and that in order to approach him, it is a very solemn and serious thing to come before a holy God. But it also teaches us now, amazingly, that in Christ, all of those boundaries are gone, aren't they? All those boundaries are gone. In the Old Testament, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go in the courtyard. Now, Gentiles are welcomed into the presence of God Himself because the veil has been torn. Jews and Gentiles together coming before the presence of God. The boundaries have now been taken down in the cross. Gentiles are not relegated to the court of the Gentiles. Normal Jews are not relegated to the inner courtyard. Priests are not limited to just the holy place outside the curtain. We now all have access to come before the throne of God. What can we say about this whole passage? Kind of sum up a lot of these things. One, God is holy. God is holy and God in his word dictates how he is to be worshipped. So God's word is determinative, regulative, if we could say it that way, of how we are to worship. God's word sets the pattern. God's word tells us how we are to worship him. God is holy. We are sinful, right? We are sinners. We are far from God. How can we as sinners approach a holy God? How can an infinitely holy God dwell in the midst of sinful people? The only answer, and it comes across time and time again throughout the Old Testament and climaxes in Jesus Christ, the only answer is atonement. The only answer is atoning sacrifice where Christ, through his blood for us on the cross, he expiates our sin, he takes away our guilt, he propitiates the wrath of God against us, and we are cleansed, we are forgiven, we are welcomed into the presence of God, and God's presence can come and dwell with us. So that we can get to the end of the story in Revelation And the new heaven and the new earth come and the new Jerusalem comes down and it says now God will dwell with his people and he will be their God. That is the ultimate end for which God did everything. To glorify himself by the creation of a people that will enjoy his presence for all of eternity. God's holy. We're sinners. We need atonement for God to dwell with us. And God's word defines how that is to be carried about. As we, as we just think and reflect on, on these furnishings, when you read passages like Exodus 35 to 39, if you're listening to it, or even if you're reading it, if you're not careful, your eyes can kind of glaze over, right? You can kind of the, if you're, le- if you're listening to Max McLean, you know, read the, the Bible, on, on audio and he's he's walking through Exodus thirty seven and thirty eight. You can your eyes can start to doze and it, it becomes it, it seems repetitive, it seems so far away from us, it seems so disconnected. You know, poles and bases and curtains and, and arcs and wood and dimensions and overlaid with gold and it, it seems so far removed from where we are now. But remember, all of this is is picturesque, isn't it? All of this is intended to portray something, is to show something in very visual, visible, tangible terms, spiritual truths about who God is and about who we are. Jesus says to us, just as he said to the woman at the well, now we can worship God not on that mountain or that mountain, not at the tabernacle or the temple. We can worship God anywhere. We now, as the church, are the temple of God. Jesus is the ultimate temple of God, isn't he? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will, I will bring it back again. I will rise it again. So Jesus is the ultimate temple. He's the ultimate presence of God among us, God in the flesh. But now we, because we have the indwelling spirit, when we gather together, we too are a temple of God we come together as different parts, different bricks, different stones, if you will, Peter says in 1 Peter. And when we gather together, these stones are joined together and we form a temple. And we are now the place where God dwells. And so when we come to gather in the presence of God, may we be reminded that the only way for which which we can do so is through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is our atoning sacrifice who welcomes us into the presence of God. May we eternally be grateful and thankful for the sacrifice of Christ. May we continually, even in light of that sacrifice and what Jesus has done for us, may we continually stand in awe of the might and the holiness of God. And may we, may we be drawn closer to him closer to him because the ultimate goal of God is for him to dwell with us and for us to dwell with him. So may we delight in, take joy in God's presence in our lives individually, but also in our lives collectively as the church of the living God. May he be praised among us. Let's bow in prayer together. Our father in heaven, you are most glorious and most holy. As we read through this portion of scripture by your servant Moses, we're reminded that you are the God of glory, who desires honor and glory for your own name, who rescues a people from bondage so that your name might be magnified in all the earth. You bring those people to Sinai and then enter into a covenant with them, and then Give them instructions and help them to build a place where you will come and dwell in their midst. Again, so that your name might be glorified in their midst and also in the world. Father, as now in this new covenant age, standing on the finished work of Jesus Christ for us, may we, God, serve as a place where you may dwell. May we be the people of, that you designed for us to be, that you purpose for us to be a purified, holy people seeking to live out your word. And may we bring honor and glory to you within the church and outside the church that your name may be exalted. Father, help us to be the salt and the light in this world that you've called us to be. And we pray this in the name of Christ, amen.